Hi, I'm Mike Pickles, and you're listening to the Daily Deal Podcast. We hear about inspirational stories from folks like you and I. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Deal Podcast with Mike Pickles. And if you have not yet, please give me a thumbs up and subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. So today, a fantastic guest we have, well, geez. He's had over 100 lives, I'd say, in his short little lifespan here on Earth. I believe, he'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he used to be a nano, maybe still is, a nanotechnologist researcher. Uh, he was a marine engineer. He's been all over the world teaching uh, English, I believe, in over 45 countries and five continents. And now he's running a nutrition and supplement store, as well as uh, he's a nutritional coach and he's a business mentor. Holy smokes, that's a lot right there. Please welcome Jonathan or John McLaren. Hey, thank you very much for having me. And and I will say, I, I no longer run the bricks and mortar supplement store. Um, so exclusively, I, I run my online nutrition coaching business as well as the uh, online mentorship program that I run as well. Okay, awesome. And you're, and you're in Red Deer, Alberta, Canada, correct? That is correct. So for any American listeners, that's about six hours drive north of Montana. Awesome. Good stuff. Now, before I forget, John, how can they reach out to you, someone who wants to get a hold of you after the show here? Uh, you can go to freedomnutritioncoach.com and you can contact me there. You could also just shoot me a friend request on, on Facebook. Um, Canadian Nomad is my, my handle, so it's Canadian O-M-A-D. And uh, yeah, you're welcome to send me a friend request. I'm pretty open there. I often use my, my personal Facebook page, kind of like an informal blog. Um, and I like dad jokes, so if you're bothered by dad jokes, maybe don't send me a friend request. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard you're the big dad joke guy. Um, Let's jump into your story here, John, if you don't mind. Yeah, or John, you prefer John or Jonathan? Sorry. Uh, either works, really. Sometimes people think that one syllable is easier than three, so I'm all right with that. Okay. I find your story uh, amazing, absolutely amazing. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, and you tell our, our listeners here, but you were almost beaten to death. Uh, and that That's correct, yeah. Completely changed your life. You lost over 100 pounds because of it or as a result of it and learned all kinds of lessons along the way. Can you? Would you mind explaining that story to us? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll give, give you a little bit of backstory. So, yeah, you mentioned that I've been, an, I was a nanotechnology researcher. That was at University of Victoria in British Columbia. Um, okay. I spent six years as a marine engineer in the Navy, um, and as well as I've been a four-time entrepreneur, and I have two failed businesses in my background as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> there, there's been quite a few ups and downs in my 39 years on this planet. And so, um, I would say it was during my, so we spent about, my wife and I spent about three years um, traveling around the world, living out of suitcases, um, just on this kind of globe-trotting adventure. And we, you know, I think when we left, we didn't really have a plan. <laughs> we're like, let's just, we just throw everything to a storage unit. We're like, let's just go and kind of make it up as we go along. Because um, we, we decided that like most people wait until they're, I don't know, their kids are grown up or they're retired or whatever, do their traveling. And we're like, you know what, let's just travel the world. And, uh, we, you know, we can always do things like buy a house and start a family later. And so that's that's what we did. And, uh, you know, 10 out of 10 times I'd do that again. Um, it was a brilliant experience. But during that time, um, one of the places that we spent time living in was South Africa. And uh, um, that was where the incident happened, where we were we were teaching underprivileged youth actually um, life skills. So it was a um, uh, an NGO, so a non-government organization, not-for-profit, that was uh, helping to prepare young people to be a little bit more employable because the South African public education system is, uh, well, it's not quite the same as you'd find here in Canada. Let's just put it that way. 
and uh, really kind of failing people. And they do have a youth unemployment crisis. And so we were teaching some basic things, things that we would take for granted, like um, linguistics, communication, um, teamwork, cooperation, um, and preparing them for, for um, going into the hospitality industry. So that was kind of the, the, the backstory there. So we're out in this nature reserve and uh, there's kind of a, it's probably a few hundred hectares, you know, they have some rhinos and giraffes and monkeys and things like that out there. And, uh, you know, rangers. And so they have an educational center and it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, really. Um, so it's about, there, there's like five buildings kind of in an L shape. So on one end, on you would have like the dining hall slash instruction area, dormitory. Uh, then you kind of have the, the washroom and, and uh, whatever facilities. And then tucked off to the side was like the instructor's cabin. And so it was, we were teaching a cohort of, of students in this, in this program. And on one night I was just walking back to the cabin by myself. It was in August, which is wintertime down in South Africa because they're Southern hemisphere, uh, walking back to the cabin from the dining hall. So it's a couple hundred feet there. And, uh, when I got back to the cabin, the door was slightly ajar, which, you know, should have probably triggered something in my brain, but it didn't, you know, I mean, we're in the middle of nowhere on a nature reserve with rangers and things like that. And so I didn't really think twice about it, but <clears throat> inside the cabin um, when I opened the door there's three men in there and they were drinking rooibos tea which is a, a South African tea they drink commonly means red bush and uh, they're eating rusks which are these kind of hard they're like biscotti and you dip them in your tea and uh, I looked at them and, and I remember one of the faces I kind of recognized because he was a ranger and so I was like is there something wrong with my cabin <laughs> like, it still wasn't you know, I still wasn't clicking that something's really wrong in this situation here. And I didn't see the fourth guy and he was outside the cabin, I guess. And it was when I got first cracked over the head with a rock that I realized like something's really wrong here. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, like, uh, I think the brain kind of goes into a bit of a de denial mode when this is happening, like this can't be happening. This isn't real, that kind of stuff. Um, but I, you know, one of the most vivid sort of images that I still have in my mind, uh, is of one of these men grabbing me like I'm, i don't know if there's, there's gonna be video here but i was i'm wearing like a colored golf shirt and uh, i remember him grabbing me by that and just swinging the rock at my head and i remember seeing him smile as the rock is being swung at my head and uh yeah so they you know um you know i got knocked down and they, they just started like kicking and stomping and um you know the idea is to to beat someone to death um and there is there's actually a reason why it, it goes like that um I would say in a nutshell, I was a representation of something they had felt historically had oppressed them and taken power away from them. And so rather than say, just shoot me and kill me, uh, they would rather put me through punishment and suffering and, and draw it out as long as possible and make it as uh, you know difficult an experience as possible. And that might actually be part of the reason why I'm still alive today. So their, their goal was to beat me to death. Um, and they did, they did, they'd succeeded a night before they beat to death another uh, farmer. Um, and so, uh, but I'm, I'm a pretty big guy. I'm, I'm six, one, two, two forty. So I'm not, I'm not a small dude. And, uh, so I managed to fight my way to, to my feet. You know, I'm concussed. My, my face is covered in blood. Like the forehead bleeds pretty easily. Um, you know, I've taken a couple hits over the head with a rock and, uh, but I managed to stumble my way back over to the dining hall. And I don't know why they didn't chase me. Like I, I wasn't exactly running quickly. I was kind of stumbling and staggering and I got blood in my eyes and it's nighttime and I'm trying to, you know, my brain is all messed up. Like, I don't, I don't know where I ever, what's going on. I just know that somehow I got to stay alive. And uh, anyways, we ended up being trapped in the building for about 45 minutes before some police actually showed up. Um, but so really that, that was, that experience took place. Um, and I don't want to draw on it too much. I mean, that, that's kind of the, the heart of the detail, but for me, um, 
I wasn't really equipped to deal with the trauma of that experience. And so after an incident like that, um, the natural tendency is to try to um, suppress because um, because it's natural to relive a traumatic experience, try to rewrite the narrative in your head. And then that's really what's happening for me is flashbacks. And I would have like random triggers of rage and things like that. Um, desire to carry out like violent acts of vengeance um, to try to, to, to gain retribution for what was done to me or what happened to me and so on. And so part of the, the way that I learned to sort of deal with this in one sense was to eat food. <laughs> And mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, I became, you know, because it's more socially acceptable than drugs or alcohol, because a lot of times drugs and alcohol, the, the use of them is really just a, a, kind of a uh, an attempt to change the channel in our brain, to alter our, our, our present rea reality, essentially. And so for me, food filled that role. <clears throat> and, and, you know, going through trauma, like there's a period of time where kind of, I think I was just in shock, like just just um and then and then there, so there's this kind of this trauma response where you know they're not going to win they're not going to win and so on and so forth and really just trying to bear the emotions and we're strong and so on and so forth and and food really just became a a, a thing that i consumed a lot of <laughs> and it wasn't exactly health food i was consuming um sometimes even just subconsciously to try to to try to not feel what i was feeling and there was like a dissociation. That was the word I was looking for. There's kind of dissociating dissociation between myself and my body, not really aware of, of like how rapidly my body was changing, how quickly I was gaining weight and so on. And when we go back to Australia, where my wife is from, probably about five months after the incident, I'd, I'd gained about a hundred pounds. So I was, I was like, and, and like pale and bloated and, and just puffy. And like, because living in South Africa is a lot like living in prison. Um, you have, you know, six foot, walls around you know brick walls around your house with razor wire on top um, gates um, private security with a push of a button so they'll they'll show up within five minutes or less ready to shoot to kill um, bars on your windows and doors things like that like you lock every door in your house not to stop them but basically to slow their progress when someone breaks into your house not if but when that kind of thing um, you sleep with weapons beside your bed like it's it's kind of a reality that we don't really think about and growing up in Canada I would have never thought about so that became that became really how I dealt with my trauma was I essentially turned into a binge eating food addict and, and gained a whole bunch of weight and then I kind of found myself having to wade into this world of diet and and weight loss culture <laughs> so wow that's, a, that's like a coconut sized nutshell <laughs> yeah no that's a lot to digest first of all sorry that you had to go through that I actually taught in uh, Africa as well for uh, with the CTF or Canadian Teachers Federation okay but I, but yeah. I was in Malawi Africa so we didn't go down to the south as much. Uh, so, but you're right. You're 100% right that you know you have razor blades and you have walls and you have guards and you know it's it's a weird environment compared to what we're used to here in you know in Canada. So yeah. So sorry about that incident that happened to you. Obviously, very very traumatic and lots of anxiety. So you mentioned you resorted to food to help you through that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and you gained over. You gained over how much weight? You over, say over hundred pounds. So over the, the, the reason pounds. I had to lose hundred pounds is because I, I had to gain that weight first. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and and, and uh, you know, and I, I will say for anyone listening, like I can, I've done the work. In other words, I've I've went through and done the work with regards to the trauma. And so if I if it sounds like I speak about this in sort of a glib or a lighthearted fashion, it's uh, I don't want to diminish the reality of the trauma that I went through, but to say that um, there's actually hope on the other side of it. Right. And you know, it's actually become an experience that I'm grateful for and I wouldn't take out of my past um, because the last 10 years of my life, because it happened just over 10 years ago, it happened just before I was turning 30, you know, I've been a heck of a struggle. Um, yeah. But that really shapes character as well. And I look back and I realize, like, I wouldn't be doing the work I'm doing now 
in the way that I'm doing it if I hadn't had to live through these struggles myself. And so that ultimately has led to me being grateful for the experience. And I've even, you know, I've never seen the men again, but I mean, I've, I've made peace with it. I've forgiven them for what they did. And uh, it's allowed me to move on with my life. So, yeah, talking about those struggles, Jonathan. So what lifestyle uh, changes, I guess, or how did you sort of overcome the trauma of nearly being murdered and gaining all that weight? <laughs> like, uh, the, the, really, the first step is actually um, coming to a place of forgiveness. And, you know, it's not just as simple as making a decision, like, I want to forgive these men in my heart for what they did to me and so on. Like, I, I realized one day that I was just tired. I was exhausted from being angry all the time and getting random flashes of rage because, you know, I grew up in Canada. You know, we're not a perfect country, but we're pretty easygoing. Like, it's a pretty safe country. We're pretty tolerant. We're pretty open, that kind of thing. And so there was a sort of conflict between like the thoughts that were showing up in my head that I really didn't want to be there thoughts of violence thoughts of anger thoughts of rage stuff like that just these primal sort of thoughts and uh I but the other part of my brain goes like this isn't who you are like this isn't the kind of person you are this is not the things that you do and uh, of course I never acted on any of these thoughts anyways but I felt a lot of guilt around even having these thoughts come into my head you know even though that's sort of a natural response from being traumatized and so a, a trauma counselor explained to me, it was kind of like um, wanting to take back something that was taken from me in the way that it was taken from me. And maybe you've heard the phrase that hurt people hurt people. Those, in other words, those who've been traumatized or, or damaged or injured, whatnot, um, tend to, those who've been abused very often will become abusers and so on, right? And there's, that's, that's kind of a, a bit of a simplification, but that's kind of what was happening. And so the, the process of forgiveness, uh, you know, every time, I would get angry thinking about what they did to me and sort of have thoughts about wanting to hurt them. I would, I would take one step back and ask the question, what must have happened in their lives? What got them to the place that this is what they were doing with their life? Because I don't think we're born murderers. <laughs> and so something must have happened to them to get into this place where because it wasn't entirely, in one sense, it wasn't entirely random that they ended up on this nature reserve trying to beat this white guy to death. Um, it wasn't about me. They didn't know who I was. They didn't know Jonathan, but they knew that I was a white guy. And so something must have happened in their life to lead them to this place where they thought this was an appropriate course of behavior. And so whenever I would, I would feel that rage kind of welling up in me, I would I would try to cultivate the sense of compassion. And it's not, and, and, and I want to say that compassion is not a get-out-of-jail-free get card. It's not absolving them of their behavior but it's trying to understand why the behavior will have occurred and in that that i could you know come to this place of forgiving them and so it was kind of a process that had to be repeated many times over before i could say i was really sort of completely free from that experience wow that's that's fantastic like good for you you know you mentioned all that compassion forgiveness you know learning to let go finding love with inside you uh, stop reaching out so good for you jonathan that's fantastic not obviously not everybody can do that and you yeah. found you found a way or many ways to do it. So that that's awesome. That's amazing. Um, I know that you're passionate or you tell me, I think you are, you're passionate about something called positive masculinity. What's that mean to you? Yeah. And I really feel like I'm still very new in a sense of trying to understand what this is. But I think why I started thinking about it is because a lot of times I feel like we hear the word masculinity and the word toxic is attached to it. And it's not very often that we hear the word masculinity with the word positive attached to it. And I think that's a real shame. I have a young son. He's seven months old. And, um, you know, and I, and I love being a dad. And I'm, I'm sure you would say the same thing. Like, it's, it's you know, the best thing ever. But I think 
if there's if there's problematic behavior, which there is, in, you know, in, in all sides of, of of humanity, it's not that, that problematic behavior is exclusive to men. But there are certain facets of male behavior that are problematic and troublesome. But if all we ever do is tell people stop doing bad things, you're bad by by virtue of who you were born to be. You know, you're. What hope do they have? <laughs> like, what are we really setting them up to be and do? And so I think, why don't we? Instead, like it's like growing up. I grew up in the '80s. You have like Homer Simpson and Rambo, and like those are your two options. Like just to be a fat, lazy doofus, really, that's kind of dumb, or this hyper-masculine superhero. There was really no middle ground there, and it's like there should be. There's a way to you know celebrate some of the amazing and wonderful aspects of of being male, um, being strong, having having integrity, strength of character, being protectors, providers. I mean, it's physically like th this is things that we've done. Human beings have done since the, the beginning of time because it, it kind of made sense to you know, and so celebrating the the best aspects of masculinity um, instead of only trying to sort of tear down or attack the worst things. We want to give men something to aspire to, young men something to aspire to and want to become um, within the realm of reality, let's say, rather than just say Rambo or Homer. <laughs> um, yeah. And so really, I feel like I'm still just kind of learning more about this because I sometimes feel like I don't fit into the traditional masculine paradigm in one sense. A lot of my behavior used to be sort of what I would call hyper-masculine. So I was into racing motorcycles, powerlifting, listening to heavy metal, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the, the truth is, I'm actually an empath at heart. Like, I'm really just a teddy bear who likes to hug people. Um, but I don't think that weakens me. You know, I'm, people, I mean, I also have a physical presence. I'm 6'1", 240. Like, I'm not a small guy. <laughs> and so, right. Um, th th somewhere in there, there's a balance to be struck. So so along with that story, you're, you're a coach. You're a freedom nutrition uh, coaching. Mm -hmm. So what sort of uh, concentration or, or what sort of guidelines or what sort of path do you take with your clients? Like, what do you focus on? Well, I would say um, I, I focus on what I call brain-driven weight loss. And this has really become an outgrowth of my own struggles, my own experience trying to lose weight. Because people ask, you know, how long did it take to lose 100 pounds? And I would say, well, it took me about six years. And that's not the answer that people want to hear. But I say, if I knew then what I know now, it wouldn't have taken me six years. But I took a lot of, like, wrong turns and wrong approaches. And I think it was because... You know, a lot of a lot of efforts to create change in weight loss, they take this outside-in approach. Um, you know, impose rules, impose restrictions. Um, you know, fail to acknowledge the human being and their internal environment, from our emotions, our mindset, our psychology, our habits. These are the things that influence our behaviors and ultimately our results. Many of our behaviors take place at the subconscious or the unconscious level, because that's how our brain works. So if our behaviors are driven by our habits, our emotions, our beliefs, you know, acting in congruence with our sense of identity, then that's something we need to we need to acknowledge in this process of trying to create change. Because losing weight is one thing, but creating permanent weight loss, like that means we actually have to create a permanent transformation. So we have to permanently change our lifestyle. We have to permanently change who we see ourselves to be. And we can really only create this by establishing new patterns of behaviors, uh, you know, a new sense of identity, new habits, and, and it's possible because our brain has this really amazing property called neuroplasticity. That's really the brain's ability to rewire itself. And so I, I try to approach it from that angle as opposed to, say, the, you know, the, the quick fix fad diet. And um, 
you know, maybe I could just say another thing just with regards to weight loss, because it seems to be I mean, it's funny that it's this controversial topic in one sense. I understand why, you know, this is the, the pendulum swinging back is sort of like the body positivity and health at every size movement, um, which has some merit. But, you know, I think ultimately has been hijacked, but that's just another rabbit hole. I, w- I want to say to people, look, see weight loss as a doorway. It's not a destination. So the truth is, for most people, our quality of health is going to be improved by lowering our body fat percentage. There's so many things that are going to improve, so many markers of disease that will improve. Now, that doesn't really sell any programs. I understand that. But the number itself is actually just a placeholder for a future that we, we feel it's going to enable us to live in, you know, where we feel comfortable on the skin. We can wear anything, feel great. We can live life more fully. Um, so for me, for example, I've got a young son. And uh, this kid's limbs never stop moving. And so I'm like, wait till he figures out how to properly use them. Like this kid's going to be, you know, I'm pretty much going to put him on a leash. Well, <laughs> I, I need to be able to keep up with this kid because I'm 39 going on 40. It means when I'm 50, this kid's going to be 10. I want to be able to keep up with him. If I was obese, all I could do is sort of sit on the couch and be like, sorry, daddy's too tired. And that, that, the, the thought of that just breaks my heart, you know. And so it, it really wasn't for me necessarily about losing 100 pounds per se. But maintaining the weight loss that I've achieved is about me wanting to be present in my son's life, physically present on the floor with him, rolling around with him, wrestling with him, playing with him, running with him, that kind of thing. And I can't, couldn't do that if I was obese. So really, that's why I say weight loss is a doorway. You know, um, it gives me the opportunity to experience life more fully. There's no, there's no permanent happiness that lies with a number on the scale it really comes from being able to live independently on our terms. I like how you said that, the doorway or association, or connection with, you know, I want to be healthy because of my son. I want to do things with my son. I'm going to be, you know, 15, 10 years, and he's going to be 10, and I want to be sitting on the couch. I want to be participating with him, you know, not just watching him. So I like that connection because I know a lot of friends and family, I know you do too, that have lost weight only to put it back on. And most of the times they put back on more. So if yeah. you have that doorway that you mentioned or association or connection, it's a lot more uh, longer lasting. It's a lifestyle, right? You're not just losing weight. It's a lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really important thing. Um, so the idea behind a diet um, right. is I'll temporarily change my behavior to get a permanent result. And that's that's a falsehood. You, you can't do that. Now, the other thing, look, weight loss, I don't think, has ever been more difficult than it is in the 21st century. We face an uphill battle. And here's why. We live in an environment that's constantly showing us food, constantly giving us cues to eat. We live in an environment where large corporations have figured out how to manufacture food products that trigger our brain. They give us a, a huge dopamine release. Um, when we're craving something, we're not like, oh, man, I could really go for a bit of raw cauliflower right now. No, we're not. It's, you know, French fries or chips or burgers or hot dogs or ice cream or chocolate or these hyper palatable bliss foods. And, and so... We have that against us, but then we also have our biology that goes against us. So we are a famine, we have a famine resilient biology, but we're living in a feast world. So our biology is, is engineered to, to store fat really effectively and to release it very slowly because throughout human history, we've before, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 years ago, we never really had food security. And so we needed to be able to store fat and to be able to release it slowly in order to survive periods of food scarcity. So this 21st century lifestyle paired with our famine biology, really, it means it's an uphill battle to try and lose weight. And fat cells, I say, they're the gift that keeps on giving. In other words, once you create a fat cell, it's always present in your body. 
Now, you can empty it and you can shrink it, and that's what happens with weight loss, but it's always there waiting to be refilled. So in one sense, I say I have to make peace with my biological reality. So my biological reality is such that I have an excess of fat cells in my body. Most of them are empty or shrunken or whatever. But if I start eating like a binge eating food addict, if I start gorging myself on junk food, I will gain weight rapidly. That's the reality I have to live with for the rest of my life. So I think it's really important to understand that the, the uphill battle, and that's why weight regain can happen really quickly. Right. Well said. Um, you talked about some 21st century battles or struggles. One of them, obviously, is uh, COVID-19 right now. So yeah. as far as nutrition, health, what do you think has changed us, like, you know, in the world almost forever? And what can we mm -hmm. do about it? Like, what do you think about that, knowing what you know? Well, uh, I always want to put in this disclaimer that this is this is purely for entertainment information purposes, and I'm not a medical doctor. This is just my opinion. Um, but I do. Th I think our world has been permanently changed. Um, in one sense, we've been collectively traumatized, um, and I don't think it's a good thing. There's been an incessant fear-mongering in the media, and it's done deliberately because this level of fear-mongering keeps our attention on their headlines. So it's it's we live in a pay-per-click digital media era where we live in what's called the attention economy. So that has hijacked our brain. <clears throat> what we know about COVID is it's an extremely survivable illness, like 99.97%. I'm not sure what the exact numbers are. I know it's well over 99%. And we know that the average age of death in COVID is beyond life expectancy. Like it's in the 80s and our life expectancy is in the late 70s kind of thing. So statistically speaking, most people, almost everyone who gets COVID even is, is going to recover from it. So, so... But we've been traumatized by fear. I just see people being terrified of human interaction. And that in itself, it, it's so essential for our mental health. And I think this is one of the very under-discussed elements. It's, it's close to my heart because I've grappled with anxiety and depression myself. The mental health ramifications of what's happened and, and the constant uh, fear-mongering has really damaged a lot of people and and even more so I'm, I'm worried for our children how they will have been damaged and made to be afraid of human connection so i think there's that aspect of it another thing that we've identified is that obesity is a real problem like we can wish it away we can talk about uh, treating everybody equally or with respect and and not being disrespectful towards somebody because of their size and i've been in the shoes i've been obese but at the same time we do ourselves no favors to bury our head in the sand and just pretend that everything's going to be okay. If you slap 100 pounds of fat back on my body, I am much more likely to die of, of COVID-19, for example. So, and maybe understand this, no one's coming to save you. And this is what I tell myself already, no one's coming to save me. I have to be my own hero. Um, my health is, is mine. There's no pharmaceutical intervention that's going to save us. We've kind of fi figured that one out. Um, there's no surgery that's going to save us. Um, our health is like our, our most valuable and should be our most valuable and cherished asset because if we lose it, it's, you know, it's very difficult to recover. Um, you know, and I could throw in a few things about the nutritional side of things, how we can sort of support our immune function and so on, um, if, if, you know, that would be helpful as well. Well, I know you mentioned um, your ch uh, children. You mentioned children and mm -hmm. all this. And you have a seven-month-year-old boy? I do. Do you have any other kids or just the uh, one? Just the one so far. None, okay. None others that I know about. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, what do you do as far as obesity and keeping him active and healthy? Like, what, 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 what types of things you try to do to him to set him up for a better lifestyle when he gets older? Uh, 
Well, for example, when, when I'm on daddy duty, um, so I'll bring him downstairs. So he, he hasn't quite fully figured out forward locomotion yet. Um, he can he can cover quite a bit of ground, surprisingly, with like pivoting, rolling, and kind of moving in reverse. But he hasn't quite figured out how to move. He tries to, keeps trying to move both his legs at the same time when he tries to move forward. So um, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm like... Because once he starts crawling, like, oh my God, he's going to be into absolutely everything. So I'm like, all right, if it takes you a little longer to figure out how to move your two legs independently in forward motion, I'm okay with that. But I'll bring him downstairs, um, put him on the floor. I'll, I'll roll around and play with him for a bit. And I'll, I'll just let him play. And then I'm going to work out. And so I want him to watch me or witness uh, me modeling healthy behavior. So he, he's going to be seeing me doing something active because their little brains are like sponges. You know, he's watching me when I hop. You know, right now I'm doing a lot of conditioning work um, because I want I want to improve my VO2 max um, because I might have to sprint after this kid. Like I see the way that his legs go. And I'm like, this kid might is probably going to be like a runner. I don't mean like a, uh, a distance runner. I mean like he's going to run after things because um, – you know, if he, if he tries to sit in my lap, he's constantly like changing directions and looking around and looking at everything. Like he's not a snuggler. He's like, I have to see and take everything in. So for me, I'm like, I want to model this healthy behavior. And then I think about my behavior, like, like how he, he watches me eat. Well, what does what does he see when he watches me eat? What does he see me eating and so on? And so I'm really, I'm really trying to think about what what behavior am I modeling for him? Because this this is setting him up for his future, and so I want him to see me eating healthy food. I don't want him to see me constantly attached to my screen, even though I run an online business. Um, I want him to see me doing things that are that are active, and I think that those things are really important. Yeah, I think you nailed it. You said uh, just to be a positive role model and let him mm. seeing you being an active. So on that note, for our listeners here today, Jonathan, what? advice or suggestions or recommendations would you give to people that are suffering right now with say obesity or uh, bad eating choices or just lack of movement and they just they just feel stuck what would you say to them um first of all your feelings are valid it it's it's okay to feel stuck and frustrated and so on um but you're probably not broken beyond repair so i think the the moment that we accept that the journey back is going to be hard, it actually gets easier. One of the things that really sets us back is unmet expectations. So if we, because we've kind of been marketed to in the sort of the fitness and weight loss industry in general that like, you know, a pill makes it easier or it should be fast and easy or something's wrong if it's not fast and easy. And I'm like, and I could probably sell more programs. You know, my own program is called Lifestyle 180 and I could probably sell, you know, more people in the program if I told them it was gonna be fast and easy, but I'd be kind of telling them a lie. You can make it a lot easier. You can shorten the curve by working with someone like a coach. Um, I say, like, if I if I knew then what I know now, I, I could have dramatically shortened my own weight loss curve. Um, but at the heart of everything, awareness is the first step to change, and more importantly, compassionate awareness. So, so much of our behavior takes place at the unconscious or subconscious level. So we need to bring our unhelpful or unhealthy behaviors into our conscious awareness, and it's in that space that we can start to change those behaviors. In the same token, we can kind of do something in reverse. We can take a healthy behavior that we would like to implement into our lives and just kind of start consciously tracking or consciously, you know, acting out that behavior each day. And eventually it'll become a habit that we don't have to think about. So for me, it started with a really simple act of self-care because I would say like, I kind of had this narrative about myself that I wasn't worthy of self-care or I wasn't worthy of self-love or self-compassion and so on. I was very, I would beat myself up a lot. I was very abusive towards myself. Um, and so brushing my teeth became what I call an anchor habit. 
that was an, one of the first acts of self-care that I would start my day with. And so start small. You know, I very often ask my clients, how do you, how do you eat an elephant? And it's, it's one bite at a time. The elephant is a metaphor for a very big problem you're fa- facing. So let's just say you have to lose like 80 or 100 pounds. You go, man, I got a lot of weight to lose, even 50 pounds. You don't, you don't need a solution that's equal in magnitude. That's the mistake. You only need to lose, you don't lose 50 pounds every day. You lose maybe an ounce or two here or there kind of thing. And so it's a step-by-step process. You don't, your solution doesn't have to be equally as big as the problem in order to successfully solve it. I like that. Well said. Accept that your journey back will be difficult, that you have that self-awareness. I like that. Very well said. All right. I'm being mindful of your time here, sir. So I want to ask you one more question, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. What person or people maybe... Um, has had some of the biggest impact in your life that's changed you to the core. Who would they be? Uh, I would say definitely one of my former coaches. His name is Scott Quick. And uh, he's the one that really shone a light on the glaring problem I was struggling with. That is, you know, I was trying to solve my problems with nutrition and supplement science. And he showed me that I needed to really work on my relationship with myself, my self-love, my self-compassion. Um, and in doing that, by healing my relationship with myself, I was able to heal my relationship with food. And ultimately, that was what led me to being able to, because I, I was a classic yo-yo dieter. I lost, I like, let's say, I've actually probably lost like 600 pounds, but it's just that I've gained, you know, lost and gained, lost and gained, right? And so it was that repairing that relationship with myself and by extension food that really meant that I was able to lose the weight and, and keep it off for good. And so, you know, I think very often people might want to, and the answer to that question would be some sort of, uh, I don't know, famous celebrity or something like that. And I'm like, no, this was someone who worked with me at a very individual level, at a very human level, showed me a ton of compassion, um, didn't give up on me, but held me, you know, accountable to, to the potential he saw within me. And because of it, I'm, I'm doing what I, what I do today. So self-healing. It sounds like self-healing was the key for you. 100%, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. There you go, folks. Today's guest was Coach John McLernan from Freedom Nutrition Coaching in Reddale, Alberta. Please, please reach out to him. You can hear from his story today how, how passionate he is about all of this. So please reach out to him via Facebook, like he said, or his website. Um, is there any anything, last words you'd like to say to us, Jonathan, or to the to people listening today? Sure. You might have heard me mention my program, Lifestyle 180. I'll just give you a quick, in a nutshell, what makes it different? Because most weight loss programs, they kind of involve strict rules, you know, restrictive um, meal plans, expensive supplement regimes. They're basically trying to tie you into a straitjacket. You know, you're trying to unnaturally force weight loss to happen. And then very often you get connected to a coach that will, you know, use judgment, shame, coercion, that kind of stuff to try to force you to change your behavior. And so I wanted to take a different approach. Um, marry the science of metabolism with the psychology of behavior change and the compassion of human connection. And the goal really is to empower the individual to reverse engineer their own healthy lifestyle. And so if I work with you, I'm going to treat you like an expert. So you're an expert in your own life experience. And I bring my expertise in nutrition and psychology, and together we're two experts collaborating towards a common goal. So that's a lot more empowering because ultimately, if all you did was follow rules that I told you to do, at the end of it, you're no more empowered than when we started. And I want to empower you. And, and so that when we're done working together, um, you, you are a different person, but you're not reliant on me to continue to maintain your success. And so I think that's really how I take a different approach to this. I like that approach, uh, empowering them. So you're basically taking a common goal. You're trying to find a common goal, meet in the middle sort of thing. You're both experts. That's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Jonathan McLernan. Thank you, my friend. Hey, thank you. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, and I hope you did, be sure to subscribe and share with your family and friends. And remember, you may be given a cactus in life, but you don't have to sit on it.